This is the Marathon Training Academy podcast, episode 407. Thanks to the Drury Hotel for being a longtime faithful sponsor of the podcast. They have over 150 locations in 26 states across the U.S. They're famous for their 530 kickback, which includes free food and drinks in the evening. If you've never stayed at the Drury Hotel, you got to give it a try. You'll love it. And you can save 15% off with the code RUN or with the link on our website. That's the Drury Hotel Company. Use the code RUN for 15% off. Thanks to Inside Tracker, created by leading scientist Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store by visiting insidetracker.com/mta. And thanks to Ucan for sponsoring this episode. Ucan is offering our listeners a chance to try six edge gels for free. All you got to do is pay shipping. Head over to youcan.co forward slash MTA to claim this offer. Youcan.co forward slash MTA to try edge gels for free. Just pay shipping. Youcan.co forward slash MTA. <laughs> Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower and inspire you to go the distance. In this episode, we bring you a joint podcast session with Brody Sharp from the Run Smarter podcast. Listen as we discuss how to handle hitting the wall, what to look for in a training plan, and questions around dealing with running injuries, like when is it okay to run with pain? Lots of info to help you run smarter. And just want to remind you, in the Academy, you can get all of our back podcast episodes, training plans, and more. Find out how to join and become a member when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Okay, well, great to be back on the mic. Angie, last week, you and your sister got on the Appalachian Trail. You told me, we're just going to be gone all day. We're just going to go as far as we want. And you told me, make sure you're available to pick our son up from practice or whatever at 8 o'clock. I'm like, you're going to be back before then, aren't you? <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> yes, we uh, decided to do an out and back on the Appalachian Trail. So we set off and we hiked uh, about 11.5 miles to a cafe in a nearby town. Just like devoured a delicious lunch. <laughs> I bet that <laughs> tasted good. It tasted so good. And then turned around and hiked back and it ended up being really a beautiful day. Um, and just really enjoyed the sunshine and the peace and quiet out in the trails. Yeah, and of course, we've got a half marathon coming up in about 30 days. We're doing the Revel Mount Charleston half. Let us know if you're going to be there. Some races are getting going, it sounds like. we got some folks in the community who have done a couple races recently, so I'd like to give some shout-outs. That's right. We'd like to say congrats to Katie in the Academy. She ran the Gasparilla half in Tampa, Florida, and got a four-minute PR despite dealing with GI issues. Also, congrats to Donna, who completed the Gasparilla Ultra, which consisted of several races, including a 5K, 8K, 15K, and half marathon, all in the same weekend. And then we got this note from Shannon. She says, over the weekend, I completed the Saguaro Half Marathon in Tucson, Arizona. I'm in the middle of training for the London Marathon and didn't intend to do this race, but I'd been told in the fall that Vacation Races was planning to put it in the vault for an indefinite period of time. Apparently, that's no longer the case. The course was almost 50-50 road and trail, and there was a lot of elevation gain, so definitely not an easy race. My only goals were to finish under the time limit, enjoy a beautiful place, and not turn an ankle on my very first trail race and I met all three goals. 
Congratulations, Shannon, on having a great time there and staying strong. We hope your training for London continues to go well. Yes, definitely. Congrats to all of you out there training, running races, putting in the work. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We're going to get into some of the nuts and bolts of training. We're hanging out on air with a fellow podcaster named Brody Sharp. He's an Australian physiotherapist with a private practice. He's also launched out online with the Run Smarter podcast. So a couple times during the year, you know, we do like to do these podcaster hangouts and we're going to be dealing with when is it okay to run with pain, what to look for in a training plan. We're going to talk about is there a link between stress and injury? What is the pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral and how can a runner avoid it? Plus, Brody shares his recommendations on what to do when your injury doesn't seem to be getting any worse or any better. You're just kind of stuck. And finally, tips for preventing and better handling the hitting of the wall. Well on my way, well on my way. Okay, Podcaster Hangout, Marathon Training Academy, and the Run Smarter Podcast. We're just going to jump into some questions and hopefully provide a lot of knowledge and value for all of you listening. Brody Sharp, he is in Australia. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks, guys. How are you? Good. So you're in the Melbourne area? I am. Yes, Melbourne, Australia, the city for having four seasons in one day. And <laughs> yeah, it's quite nice at the moment. My kids are begging me to take him to Australia this summer. Mm-hmm. Summer for us, but yeah, I'm like, for you. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to go over there. It'll be winter time. I like to go somewhere warm. I've been freaking cold for yeah. months now. I want to go somewhere warm. <laughs> well, if you head up north, it's going to be, it's, it's warm, you know, all days of the year when, it, if you head up yeah. north, but don't come to Melbourne when it's winter, you're not going to like it. <laughs> Winter's a great time for races though, right? I mean, you know, oh, yeah. depending true. on where you go. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's true. We do really want to go because we've always had a lot of listeners from Australia. They're Mm -hmm. super cool people. We've met them here in the States and they're like, hey, you should come run a marathon over here. So (laughs) I know we'll make it over there. Uh, So I guess let's start here. What got you interested in running? Yeah. uh, Well, I'm a physiotherapist by trade or a physical therapist as the US would call it. And I got back from actually traveling around North America and I was extremely unfit and just like, drinking beers and like not doing a lot of exercise for six months. And my sister was training for a half marathon when I got back and she was like, oh, why don't she need the accountability? So she's like, oh, why don't we'll train together and we'll sort of have a bit of a accountability. And so we did that and just loved it. And I carried over into my career because I was just a generic physio seeing anyone under the sun, didn't really care about much about running. I saw a lot of runners, but didn't really care much about it. But then once I started training and started preparing for a half marathon and then a marathon, and then I was seeing injured runners, it just ignited my passion. I was wanting to talk about their shoes and their cadence and like what the <laughs> goals they had and quickly realized that there are a lot of running misconceptions, a lot of things about when to run, can I run through this injury, uh, what causes injuries, and a lot of people came in really confused and I spent most of my time just educating them about running injuries, how to overcome them, how to reduce your risk of injuries and sort of stemmed my career from there. I started the Run Smarter podcast. I now own my own clinic, just treating runners. And yeah, it just sort of just launched a bit of a passion, me trying to educate as many runners as possible. Are there enough injured runners out there that you stay busy in your clinic? (laughs) Oh, yes. I tell myself every day, (laughs) yes, it's a very good population to pick because people just run themselves into the ground, constantly injured. Like you'd probably know just talking to runners yourselves. Every runner that jumps into my Facebook group, I reach out and say, how's your running going? 
80% of them, oh, not so well. I've got this Achilles issue or I've got this knee issue, this plantar fasciitis, shin splints. It's um, quite prevalent. Well, I know that we get a lot of beginner runners and often when you're dealing with beginners, then people are kind of finding things out the hard way. And so injuries, injury prevention is really a hot topic. So one of the questions that I had for you is it can be really tough to make judgment calls when it comes to knowing when to get help. You know, you have this issue and you're you're running through it, but you're not sure you should be running through it. When is it okay to run with pain? Because we probably all do it and a lot of times we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. It's it's such a, a dilemma for a lot of runners and they don't want to stop running. And mm-hmm. when especially once you build up momentum, you don't want to lose your fitness. And so a lot of people just like persist and sort of sometimes they're a bit stubborn and they run through an injury in the hope that it might get better. And for most running related injuries, we can sort of provide some blanket statements. And of course, every injury and every individual's unique and tailored advice mm-hmm. would be the best. But I think the generic rules are, are pretty sound. And for the most part, if you're running with an injury and it's low levels of pain, usually we say less than a four out of 10. So a zero, one, two, three out of 10 is acceptable during that run. That's rule number one. And how people interpret what's a three out of 10, that's, that's, I can get into that as well. But like, do they have a high pain tolerance? Do they exactly, not? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I usually like to think of uh, low levels of pain would be something that's kind of, it's noticeable, but you're not hesitant to plant the foot and push off the ground. Like, there's no compensation or hesitation when it comes to a fluent running stride because people can have low levels of pain and, they sort of run through it and they still have confidence to do that running action. Mm -hmm. Usually I would consider that is less than a four out of 10. So they're not changing their gait and like compensating in some way. Correct. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. they're not really fighting to have a fluent stride. So some people can be really stubborn, have this really nagging plantar fasciitis and creep up to a five, six, seven out of 10, but they can still like through willpower, just do a fluent stride. So there's no like hesitation there. There's no resistance. It sort of feels like a bit easier to go through that fluent stride. And most people know when they're sort of fooling themselves or they're trying to lie to themselves and say, oh yeah, it's definitely a three out of 10. But that's when we get into our next rule of acceptable running. So less than a four out of 10 during the run, but Mm -hmm. it needs to return to baseline in less than 24 hours. I've Changed my mind a little bit and said like usually less than 12 hours is better, but less than 24 hours is a pretty good benchmark. And what's baseline? So baseline would be your most settled state. So if someone has plantar fasciitis, they wake up and it's like a a one out of 10 and that lasts about 10 minutes. If anyone's had plantar fasciitis, they know that the first steps in the morning is usually (laughs) the most revealing. And so we have one out of 10, lasts about 10 minutes. Okay. If you haven't really irritated it and it's been that way for about two weeks, that's your baseline. So we want to make sure that when Mm -hmm. we do a run, okay, less than a four out of 10 during and it returns to baseline in less than 24 hours. If you wake up the next day and it's like a three out of 10 and lasts 15 minutes, that is not reaching your baseline and what you've done the day before has been too much. And so usually most running related injuries can have some sort of retesting assessment. Like if it's knee pain, it's like going down the stairs or up the stairs first thing in the morning. Uh, You know, you usually can find something that produces pain and that's like reproducible. Uh, But then I have a third rule and this is what trips most people up because they can pass the first two rules. My third rule is it needs to have noticeable improvement week by week. 
if you've had an injury for say less than six months, week by week, if you've had an injury for 12 months or I've had running related injuries for five years, maybe that trend needs to be a bit more gradual. So like definitely every two weeks or every three weeks, you should notice at least some sort of noticeable improvement. That's not better in three weeks. That's noticing a trend and, you know, can have some flare-ups. Flare-ups are perfectly okay in the recovery process, but you need to see that noticeable improvement. And so if you're not noticing that long-term trend, maybe your perception of pain is skewed. So maybe you're convincing yourself it's a three out of 10 during the run, but it's really someone else's five out of 10. And so if you're not seeing that long-term trend, maybe for you, we need to change those rules and say less than a two out of 10 during that run for you and your how you perceive pain and those sorts of things. And mm-hmm. so in the most part, Follow those rules to know if you're on the right track and if you can continue running with your current injury. I think that's really excellent advice. Um, I know I've fooled myself before. I had a proximal uh, hamstring tendinopathy, and those can linger, as you oh, yes. <laughs> know. And pretty much it was like oh, I could get through most things, but it was just wasn't going away for a long period of time. And you know, finally I had to admit, this thing has defeated me in all my efforts, and I need to go, go to a physical therapist and get to the bottom of this. And of course, that was effective. But How long did you have that for, out of curiosity? It came and went, um, but I would say it was like 18 months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bit of a side story because I don't normally talk about this, but I actually have a second podcast. It's called mm-hmm. Overcoming Proximal Hamstring Tendinopathy Podcast. You and- know, I listened to an episode because when I was, you know, in, in kind of in the weeds of like, what do I do about this thing? I've got to do something. And I listened to an episode. And I just am now making that connection. That was you. <laughs> That's Yeah. That's a very specific and very niche Oh, yes, it is. Yes. It generates a lot of business for me, but I have over 70 episodes just overcoming and treating this one. It is a, it's a nasty condition. I've had it before as well. And it can be very stubborn, often misdiagnosed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people think it's glute pain or piriformis syndrome or something. They just stretch, doesn't get better. So yeah, a lot of education around that one. Yeah, that was really helpful because I think I, when I listened to that, I had the realization like the stretching is making it worse. You got to stop the stretching. Yeah. That's probably what is causing it to linger. And you're not accepting the fact that you need to go get professional help. So yes, yeah, probably a conversation for another time. I could do a whole other episode yeah. on that particular topic, but um, I want to throw the questions back at you now. I'm curious about like the marathon side of things and it's not really my expertise, like the performance side of things. I love talking about injuries and injury prevention stuff, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. When it comes to most people who want a marathon plan, very few like get a coach and say, build out a plan for me. Like their first step, if they've got their first ever marathon is usually like a a training plan or they Mm -hmm. look up online, just some sort of static sort of training plans. What do you think the pros and cons are with those sort of plans. What are your thoughts on what it might be missing or the pros and cons you'd say? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Because like you're talking about for my first marathon before I knew anything about running, (laughs) did it was doing everything the hard way. I printed out one of those generic plans and was like, okay, this is the law and I've got to follow this thing. And, you know, I followed it into injury, basically. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, it's not necessarily saying it was the plan's fault. I'm sure in an ideal world, you know, most of the plans are good, but we don't live in an ideal world. So I think one of the major cons of just a generic training plan is it doesn't take into um, account just the fact that we live in a world with a lot of extra stresses and factors and it just doesn't really take real life into account. 
Um, and so I think people can approach this differently. You take the, the type A person who follows a training plan like that, and they can often run themselves into injury because by God, they are going to follow every single thing that that training plan says. And if they miss a run for some reason, they're going to throw in an extra one the next week to make it up. Um, and then there's kind of another group that I find is the group that kind of takes it as just a general suggestion. And so they're like, you know, I'm going to do 50% of this. They end up missing big swaths of the training plan. And so they roll into their marathon often undertrained. And that can also lead to injury and problems and just being disillusioned about long distance running because honestly, it's not going to be that great of an experience if you've kind of half-assed your training plan and you get to the marathon and it's a lot harder than you were expecting it to be. And I will say that, you know, we have a lot of people that come to us who are injury prone runners and like people who are starting running as like a master, you know, over age 40, which I absolutely love. I love to see people getting into running for the first time or coming back to running as an older runner. But there are special challenges. And I think some of those cookie cutter training plans don't address those special challenges that older runners need, like extra recovery and maybe a more gradual increase of mileage and things like that. I mean, you have your thoughts? Well, we just had a client of ours on the podcast. Uh, his name is Parker. We had a really fun conversation with him and he ran his first half marathon with the plan he just found on the internet. And just being a newbie and a beginner, you don't know. And we all make these mistakes, but he, he thought, I need to run every run really hard. Otherwise it doesn't count. So then he, he worked with a coach and the coach is like, you know what, we, let's slow you down and do four days of running per week. Just focus on keeping your heart rate down, just low and slow. And he, he actually fell in love with running after he learned to run slow. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. Yeah, that outside voice of a coach saying, this is actually what you need to do. Boom, go do it like this. Mm -hmm. can be helpful. For sure. I think, like you said, Angie, the flexibility within the training plan, because no one can ever anticipate, if it's a 12-week program, no one can ever anticipate what happens week six if you mm -hmm. have to travel or if you, you're unwell or if there's stressful moments at work or those sorts of things. If, definitely we go through moments of not, not sleeping that well and mm -hmm. your training needs to reflect that as well. I think when I talk to my runners and I say, oh yeah, let's just modify this week based on what's happened. They're like, so I don't have to do these sessions? Are you saying that <laughs> I don't have to get these done? I'm like, no, you don't have to. It's, it's important that we follow the, the overall general principles of training, but it's not a rigid formula that has to be ticked off. Yes. And some people need that permission to like, this is actually going to harm you if you follow, you know, every single workout the way it is just written on the paper, because that doesn't reflect real life. And, you know, kind of like our ability to train hard and make progress is proportional to our ability to recover and everyone's capacity to recover is different. And so that's one of the questions I had for you. Why is there a link between stress and injury? And, you know, sometimes like that training plan can't take into account the other stuff that you have going on. Yeah. So we're talking about mental stress rather than like physical pounding the ground type of stress? Any kind of stress, like mental, emotional. Just life stress. Life stress that, you know, yeah. in addition to that physical stress, I suppose, you know, sometimes we discount that. Hey, we're Americans. We're continually stressed out over here. <laughs> yes. I don't think it's <laughs> Americans have the corner on stress. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess one way that people can look at it is, you don't get stronger during your workouts. You get strong after your workouts once you've hit adequate recovery. So recovery is the most, like, is a crucial part of the adaptation cycle. That's how you get stronger. And so when it comes to your body having to enter recovery mode, that's really important. 
like you can run a session and be physically exhausted, worked out, but then you can go to work and be physically stressed and your body still hasn't entered your recovery mode yet. Mm. And the way I like to look at it is the body doesn't recognize the difference between a physical workout and like mental stress because of the same hormones that it produces. Like it circulates this adrenaline, cortisol, all this sort of stuff, all these stress hormones. It just circulates through your body in the same way. So like if you're really stressed, your heart rate increases, your blood pressure increases, your sweat rate increases. Like it's all those sort of signs of exercise, but your body just doesn't recognize the difference. And it's it sort of has this um, evolutionary adaptation to it because when you're stressed, you want to kind of run away from danger. You want to be primed, ready to go, ready to like, you know, escape whatever danger there is. And so that's why it looks the same to the body. The body just recognizes it as the same type of stress. Mm. And if you do a workout and then you go back home and it's chaos with the family at home, then you go to work and it's chaos and there's deadlines and there's all this responsibility. Then you go home and you, you struggle to sleep because you're thinking about work and thinking about family, thinking about the future, you're thinking about an injury or, you know, all these sorts of things. Your body is just constantly in a state of wanting to exercise or wanting to escape and you're not entering that recovery mode. And so when we talk about stress and we talk about sleep and we talk about all these sort of recovery metrics, we want to make sure that you're getting the right balance. And if that balance isn't there, because sometimes these things are unavoidable. If you if you get a promotion at work or if you have a newborn baby and a lot of stress is piled on, a reduction in sleep, like these sort of things are inevitable in some circumstances. You might need to peg back your training. Your your mm-hmm. physical output needs to represent your how much you can recover. In circumstances when you can re- enhance your recovery big time, if you're an ultra marathoner and your recovery is top notch, 10 hours of sleep per day, getting all of this like meditation in, breathing exercises, you know, ice baths, you're doing everything possible, then, you know, it's probably a good opportunity for you to start ramping up your training and getting that adaptation response. But rarely does that happen for runners. Rarely people Mm. are stressed and they want to run to escape their stress or they want to like use it as a an outlet to de-stress. And so they just run themselves into the ground and the body just doesn't recognize it as recovery and they just develop an injury. And plenty of research to back this up as well. There's There was a research paper in 2018 that looked at a questionnaire for an athletic population and they just had a look at personality types. They just had a look at like what sort of personality types they have when people develop injuries. And they found a correlation between those who are like perfectionists. So those who are like really striving for endeavors, like they're really like sort of, like you say, type A, really Mm -hmm. hard focused. And they develop an injury because of this drive. They found that if you are high on this particular questionnaire on perfectionistic concerns, so you're concerned about performing, maybe letting down your teammates, maybe letting down yourself if you can't reach this PB for this race, those sorts of things. You are twice as likely to get an injury per standard deviation above, you know, the normal population. So huge statistic, huge correlations with that. And, you know, we're starting to see how how often are people stressed and they say, okay, now's not the time for me to push. Let me back off my training loads. Like how often do you ever see that? And that's what we need to do if we want to train smarter. Yeah, that's that's a great point that our body can't differentiate. And, you know, often in real life, you just can't run away from the things that are stressing you out. So it's all about yeah. balancing those stresses. And sometimes it's more important to sleep in than it is to get up Ooh, before the yes. crack of dawn to get a run in. 
And that can be hard for that perfectionistic personality yeah. to do because I'm a recovering <laughs> perfectionist. So <laughs> It's a good lesson. We have uh, sleep is your number one recovery tool. I've had mm-hmm. so many people get up 20 minutes earlier just to do a foam rolling session before they run. Um, you know, foam rolling can feel nice, but if I wanted to make that decision, I'd stay in bed 20 minutes longer just because mm-hmm. it is the biggest recovery tool you have and I wouldn't shorten it by any means. I have no problem staying in bed 20 minutes longer. <laughs> you have my permission, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation thus far. Quick break to thank our episode sponsor, UCAN. We've used UCAN now in over, I don't know, 50 marathons, ultras, half marathons. It's never let us down. That's right. People have heard us talk about UCAN a lot. And if you've never tried it and you are tired of those spikes and crashes, and the GI distress that can come along with sugar-based sports nutrition. This is a really good time to try UCAN. They use a steady-release carb called Live Steady, and so you don't feel the highs and lows in energy. And they aren't too thick or sweet, so you don't get that kind of cloying taste in your mouth. Many of the top marathon runners in the U.S. right now are using UCAN. People like Emily Sisson, Kira D'Amato, Sarah Hall, and Emma Bates all use UCAN to fuel their training and races So it's accessible for elite runners and those of us who are ordinary everyday runners. And right now you can try Edge Gel for free. Just pay for shipping. Head over to UCAN.co. Use the code MTA, but definitely head over to there to try the Edge Gels for free if you haven't. UCAN.co forward slash MTA. Just pay shipping. Give Edge Gel a try. Thanks also to Inside Tracker. They make it so easy and convenient to get a blood test right where you live. Boom, they send it off to the lab and you get back all this great data and they will give you these practical recommendations and easy to use dashboard where you can just pop in there and see what your numbers are and take action based on those numbers. That's right. I'm looking forward to getting an inside tracker test soon. It's been about a year since I've had my blood tested and I like to keep an eye on my iron and ferritin levels because I often struggle with those levels and also hormone levels, which you know, when you're in perimenopause is important to keep your eye on. And I always trust Inside Tracker's data and recommendations to help me make good choices on how to proceed with my health. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. You just go to insidetracker.com forward slash MTA. Created by leading scientists, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. That's insidetracker.com forward slash MTA to save 20% off the entire store. A lot of runners that I have, they, the general progression is to go from 10K to half marathon to full marathon. And that jump from like the half marathon to the full marathon, I'll, you, you hear the, the saying all the time, it's a marathon isn't just double a half marathon. There's so many, <laughs> uh, it's such a beast. It's such a big mm-hmm. challenge. And I think one of the biggest challenges is like the mental component. Like some people who aren't psychologically prepared, they really have a bad day. And so I'm always like fascinated about the psychological side of things. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to ask you guys, do you have any particular strategies in ways of like sharpening someone's mental game to like psychologically tackle a marathon when it comes to trying to get out their best performance? I think that's really important. I think the first thing to realize is that some people beat themselves up because the marathon is so much harder than you know, half marathon, they think, what is wrong with me? And there's nothing wrong with them. It's hard for everyone. So I think just realizing that it is really a tough challenge 
And the marathon is something that reveals what's inside. So it's going to not only show you your physical weaknesses, but it's going to show you your mental, your emotional, like where those areas could use a little bit of work. And so I think that's one of the really cool things because all of us are a work in progress and we're never going to reach that perfection finish line. And so I I think the marathon is really like a metaphor for life because if you cannot get invested and enjoy the journey, then there's that arrival fallacy and you're going to maybe get to that destination you thought was <laughs> the arrival and it's it's going to be hollow for you. So if you can't learn to you know, really enjoy the process of learning about yourself. So I think it's a really good thing, you know, when maybe you're on a long run and you kind of like come up against some doubt or discouragement. That's totally normal. And so I think realizing like everyone goes through that. And if you're feeling discouraged or like you're not strong enough, then realize that you're in very good company because even though maybe people around you look like they have it all together, no one does. (laughs) You know, I've run I've run 70 marathons and every single one is a mental battle in some way. Like you can never predict how it's going to, you know, your mind's going to battle you. Um, But there are some great ways backed up by science. There's a lot of great books written by psychologists and runners who have trained at the elite level who have a lot of great tips and tricks on how to overcome those things. Um, We talked to Dave Proctor, an ultra runner who ran across Canada recently. And, you know, he was kind of talking about how evolutionarily your brain is invested in your survival. And so if it sees that you know, you're maybe doing something that feels as unwise, you're kind of like getting close to that line where it feels like this territory is <laughs> not great for our thriving, our um, equilibrium, then it's going to try to throw anything at you to get you to stop. And so kind of realizing that I think is encouraging because you always have more to give than what your brain tells you. We've talked to a lot of just really hardcore men and women like Dave Proctor. And there are some some people that actually enjoy finding that edge when they start to have doubts, they want to, they want it to come. They're welcoming the pain. It's almost like um, an old friend. Mm-hmm. Mm. So most of us spend our life running from pain. These people have conditioned their mind to look for it and then to enjoy the game of managing it, pushing through it, processing it, dealing with it. Angie mentioned, you know, there's a lot of good books out there. Um, the Runner's Brain by Dr. Jeff Brown. He's a Harvard psychologist. Really fascinating book. And then Endure by Alex Hutchinson. You've probably heard of that one. Definitely. He talks about the whole enchilada of endurance. And then finally, this is not a running related book, but it's something that I just recently listened to. It's called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. One thing he says in that book that, that stuck out to me, he says, you are not your thoughts. You are the one observing your thoughts. So if you're out there and you have negative thoughts, there's part of you that can step back and say, wow, I have really negative thoughts right now. Like I am really tired. I I feel like quitting. I feel like sitting on this rock. So you can observe yourself going into that space, that negative headspace, that negative headspace, that's your evolutionary condition to preserve resources. The real you, the one that aspires to be a badass and to be a marathoner, the real you is the one observing the lizard brain you, right? So just remember that. So just watch the thoughts go by like you would watch a stick floating down a river. Mm. It just comes and goes. You just observe it pass. Really it's like not that. who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not investing so much in the negative thinking because we all have negative thinking, but we can choose whether we latch on to that or whether we just kind of acknowledge it and watch it pass. Yeah. 
it's almost like building on your like emotional intelligence, right? mm-hmm. like people train physically for, for a marathon, but if they really want to tap into all those aspects that to get you to your best performance, you actually need, like you, you guys suggest, it's like having more of an intuitive sense of your emotions, your thought process, you know, detaching yourself from the heat of the moment. So you don't talking yourself out of how many people talk themselves out of a marathon by like, Oh, my foot's hurting a little bit. Oh, it's hurting a lot. Oh, now I'm limping. Now I'm walking. This is the worst day ever. It's too hot. I didn't plan for this. And then they just like spiral out of control and they just have in their eyes, the worst day ever. Whereas you can easily just turn that around just through how you want to interpret that experience and how you want Mm -hmm. to interpret the, the moment and the day. You can easily turn that around with positive thinking and that sort of stuff. So yeah, most people don't think about building on their emotional intelligence, but probably key if they want to perform at their best. Exactly. We did a whole episode on emotional intelligence, in fact. So we were kind of talking about spiraling in our thoughts, in our mental space. Um, I thought I would ask you, Brody, about a different type of spiral, and it's called the pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral. Sounds really ominous. So what is that (laughs) and how can runners avoid it? (laughs) I love your segues, Angie. They're very professional. Thank Um, you. (laughs) the, The pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral is one of the most Favorite topics I like talking about, and it resonates with a lot. If anyone's been injured, they've been injured for a long time. Um, mostly, this will like resonate with you. It is essentially talking about. Let's just say someone gets injured. Let's just say that they have plantar fasciitis, and they realize that they plantar fasciitis flares up whenever they reach like a ten k. So that's like their tolerance. Otherwise, if you exceed that tolerance, symptoms increase. And so they say to themselves, "Okay." I've had this plantar fasciitis for a while now. Maybe I just need time off. Maybe I need to to rest and let my body heal because that's what the body does. It heals when you rest. And mm-hmm. so one thing that people need to realize is that plantar fasciitis, you can substitute this with any other running-related injury, but that plantar fasciitis is sensitive at, in the moment. It's painful and it's not going to tolerate what it once could and it's what we call sensitized. If you take some time away from running, let's just say you rest a week, you're fostering a weakened state. You're taking uh, that exercise and that tolerance away from that structure so that the capacity of that structure diminishes. So then you have a, a week off and then you return to 10Ks and it flares up even worse than what it did before. And you're like, okay, people tend to interpret this as, oh, I actually need more time off. My body needs more mm-hmm. time to recover. And so you peg things back again, you take another week off and then you say, all right, let me be a bit more conservative and let me try a 5K run. And that 5K run has now exceeded the tolerance and it flares up again. And this downward pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral continues to where the capacity just diminishes further and further and further to the point where it starts to carry over into everyday life. You say, oh, now walking for two hours is flaring me up. Oh, now anytime I'm standing barefoot for more than 30 minutes, that's flaring me up. And then- Mm. It can continue. Like plantar, I use plantar fasciitis as an example because it's a condition that actually, like, you, you see this represented the most. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, people can say, "Oh, now I have to wear orthotics, or now I have to wear supportive shoes." Anytime I don't wear supportive shoes, my plantar fasciitis flares up. And you just hear this story from these clients; they repeat it back to you. What's happened over the last twelve months? And you just see this pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral, like spiral out of control. And the further down the spiral you are, the harder it is to work back up. 
And sometimes I catch people saying, all right, we've been in this downward spiral for about three weeks. We're still fine now. We can tolerate X, Y, Z. Let's work our way back up proactively rather than pulling back and resting. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens with knee pain, ITB syndrome, like most running related injuries, which is why for the most part, we don't really recommend rest or absolute rest for, for these injuries. Hence why we have those pain rules that I said at the start, you can be a lot more proactive than you think. Mm. And I think that like actually gives people hope because it's very demoralizing to be in that pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral, because you're thinking like, I'm making a sacrifice and I'm not running and I'm doing this to heal. And then when it doesn't have the desired effect, it's like, my body is betraying me. Like what is going on? You know, this was supposed to be the magic cure and it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. It all goes back to most running related injuries have this load versus capacity model. There's other things that do get influenced, but for the most part, you can just trace everything back to load versus capacity. So let's use this plantar fasciitis as an example. Let's say we've got to the point where we've had two weeks off and now 5Ks flares things up. We can say, all right, let's see what you can tolerate because your current plantar fasciitis, the plantar fascia has a certain capacity. We need to find what load you can tolerate and then build up from there. Because once you find a load that you can tolerate, that might be a run walk, two minutes on, two minutes off, 10 times. And let's just see what your symptoms are like. If there's no flare up, fantastic. Next time, let's do a little bit more and see where we can find ourselves. So again, we're being proactive. Let's find some rehab exercises that stimulate the plantar fasciitis that build up the intrinsic muscles of the foot that load up the plantar fascia without flaring up symptoms. That's another pillar that we can use to raise the capacity. As soon as we find the capacity you can tolerate, we then build up the load and consequently the capacity builds up alongside that. We're using symptoms to interpret uh, whether it's successful or not. We're using that 24-hour rule. We're using the week-by-week rule. And then we're gradually building you up from there. This is what we do for most running-related injuries. And this is essentially, it can all be boiled down to that load versus capacity model. Hmm. Do you find that some people, they think that if they put any load whatsoever on it, that they're not going to fully heal? Yeah. Well, a lot of times when I work with injured runners is trying to reassure them that a little bit of discomfort is okay. Tendons, Mm. especially a lot of times people, I tell them to do like a deadlift to build up the tolerance of their proximal hamstring tendon. And as soon as they do a deadlift, they've got a sharp, like three out of 10 pain and they don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. And I have to sort of reassure them and say, yes, if you do this three out of 10 deadlift and you're sore for a couple of hours afterwards, yes, it's too much, but let's just try, just trust me on this one. Let's just do your three sets of 10, a heavy load. If it's a two or three out of 10, just trust the process. If it returns to baseline shortly after, then we know that you've tolerated that. And they actually progress a lot faster compared to someone who tries to do their deadlifts pain-free and really struggles to progress because any little progression creates a little bit of pain, they're not really going to get anywhere. There's tons of evidence to show when it comes to tendon injuries. Poke into a little bit of pain during your exercise and you're going to recover and heal a lot quicker. And so, yeah, a, a lot of times there's reassurance that's needed. It's good stuff. How about we move on to the next question that I've written down? Let's do it. Okay. I, I want to know... Again, back to the marathon, back to the sort of like the hardest parts, uh, hitting the wall when it comes to that. It's a tough process. It's hell for some people. It's like the, it's what people dread the most when it comes to the marathon. So curious to hear both your answers on what is the best way to, I guess, prolong or prevent or just better handle 
hitting the wall during the marathon. It's funny because while you're saying hitting the wall, someone's knocking on our door <laughs> upstairs. Ooh. I know you can't hear it. Crazy. <laughs> someone's literally hitting our wall. I guess sometimes I, I like to think about hitting the wall. There's like two different aspects of it. One, you know, kind of like you mentioned, is the mental aspect and that self-doubt that we all have, like going to that unknown distance, because most training plans cap out anywhere from like 18 to 22 miles for the longest run. You know, you don't know if you're going to have what it takes. So I think there is that mental process that goes into hitting the wall. Um, Obviously, if you've been following a training plan, hopefully your body has been able to increase its capacity and you've had that time on your feet and you've practiced a lot of things during long runs, like how you're going to handle different challenges. So all that goes into helping you push past that distance. Another aspect of hitting the wall, I kind of consider like bonking where you're basically your body is deficient of carbohydrate or, you know, fueling and you're having fueling issues. So I think there's two different components. Some of it can be mental and training wise. Um, Some of it can be, you know, fueling. Um, So I think it's really important to practice a fueling strategy during your training and really try to, as best as you can, work through a lot of things at that point. Um, A lot of people make the mistake of being very haphazard with their fueling during training. They get to the marathon. They've really never used the fueling product that the marathon is serving. And they're just like, well, you know, I guess at every aid station, I'll grab a cup of whatever they have not knowing if it's going to settle well with their system, not knowing if it's going to be sufficient or too much. Um, and so I think having a fueling plan going into a marathon can give you more confidence, number one, that your body is going to be prepared to handle the distance. When your blood sugar starts dropping, <laughs> it's not circulating through your brain. You start not to make very good decisions. Um, and so fuel that you don't consume can't help you. So like, don't Mm -hmm. wait until you're like kind of feeling lightheaded and your legs feel rubbery before you take your fuel, have Mm. that plan and be taking it on a regular basis so that you never get to the point where you're like, whoa, I don't know if I can (laughs) go the final 5k because I'm just tapped out here. So I've run 18 plus marathons. I've bonked one time and it was last year at the Richmond half marathon. It was actually after I finished. Really? I, I got really dizzy. And was sitting on the grass and we liked a fueling product called You Can, but I forgot it at home. And I can get through a half marathon without any fuel, but it was really hot. Mm. And I just sweated out on my electrolytes. And so I, I just desperately needed electrolytes and I didn't bring any. Like Angie was talking about, it was like a physiological problem. I bonked because of a lack of, of fuel. And I think that's typically what we see. Runner's experience is not necessarily a mental wall they hit. It's more like a lack of preemptive fueling. Especially on a hot day, a hot day yeah. or like conditions like that can really throw a curve. Yeah. Getting yeah. your fueling, your hydration, your electrolyte balance right um, <laughs> yeah. is, is a big, a big issue. It's a big puzzle for mm-hmm. a lot of people to figure out. But yeah, it's so sure. yeah, because a lot of people have, you know, GI issues with certain products. And so it's really important to use your training period to start working through some of those issues. <laughs> yeah. So like one of those things would be, like you said, trying to mimic race day conditions as much as possible mm-hmm. so that you know not only that you're physically training for that event, but you know that you can physically 
handle whatever fueling strategy that might be. And one of the takeaways that I'm hearing from you is that if you do start feeling dizzy and decide to take some electrolytes or whatever fuel you might have, if you're already feeling dizzy, sometimes that's too late. Sometimes you need to sort of fuel yourself beforehand. And even like when you do get fatigued, if the further into the marathon you are and the more fatigued you are, the more blood is going away from your gut to be able to digest a lot of this stuff anyway. So mm-hmm. you might as well try to fuel earlier before symptoms arise and while you have the capacity and ability to absorb and digest a lot of that fuel anyway. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it crazy? Back in the day, these guys were running marathons without any fuel. and or they thought water sometimes. <laughs> yeah, they thought they weren't supposed to drink water either. <laughs> crazy. We've gotten soft. Quick break to thank our sponsor, AG1 by Athletic Greens. Have you tried AG1 yet? Give it a try. You'll see why we love it. Our kids love it. You can actually get five free travel packs and a one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. By the way, Angie, this company, people were sending me screenshots of like they're running commercials. This company just like exploded. Because it it is the bomb. I mean, we've been using it for years. It's one of those things that I would buy with my own money. We do buy with our own money. <laughs> yep. And it doesn't really take much to add this step. And it's very important in your health routine. It's the first thing that I drink in the morning. And my sister was just saying that at the beginning of the year, she and her husband just ordered it again. They've used it before, but she's like... This is one of the things that is consistently helps us with our health. One of the things that she notices the most is improved digestion. And I've heard that from a lot of people. It's got a great blend of prebiotics, probiotics, and naturally occurring enzymes that help bolster digestion and also help with nutrient absorption for your microbiome. AG1 by Athletic Greens. Just go over to athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA to get that one year supply of vitamin D and the five free travel packs with your first purchase. Athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. So I think you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but what do you recommend when injuries aren't getting any worse or, or any better? You know, I kind of alluded to having that long standing um, hamstring tendinopathy. And maybe a person has kind of thrown everything they know at this injury and they're yeah. just kind of feeling stuck. What is the next step for people? It's it's funny because on my podcast, in the links in my show notes, I have like a free 20-minute injury chat for those who just want to chat about their injury. And mm-hmm. I did a podcast episode on when your injury isn't getting better, but isn't getting worse. And mm-hmm. I sort of highlighted this particular scenario. And I had so many people book in for a free injury chat because they're like, oh my God, this is me. All right. <laughs> yes, It's sort yes. of like you convince yourself that you don't need to take action. You convince yourself that you're fine because it's not getting worse. But right. you look back on it and you're like, you know what? I've probably had this for about six months now. And sometimes people just, they live week to week and they don't really look at yes. the, the long scale of things. So actually, man, I've had this for a very, very long time. And I've had a couple of bad episodes and I've had a couple of bad situations, but they just convince themselves otherwise. And I think sometimes I was going to interject here real quick. I think sometimes people are worried that they're going to go and they're going to go to a physical therapist or a physio of some kind and they're going to say, stop running. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the fear is, okay, they're going to tell me not to run, which I'm going Mm -hmm. to lose fitness and lose all this time and energy I've worked to build up this training plan. I've spent the last three months making all this progress in my fitness and then it's all just going to go back to square one as soon as I try and sort out this injury and they're going to take away what I love. And Mm -hmm. that's another thing as well. It's not just the fitness component. It is running is what I love. I don't see myself doing anything else. It's my stress relief. It's what I identify as. And so taking that away is a big deal. 
And Mm -hmm. like we've discussed on this podcast, if you find the right person, they might tell you, okay, you probably can't run the same volume you are right now. Let's find out what volume you can run at so you can preserve your fitness and get over this injury at the same time and sort of work with them to build that up. But to your point as well, a lot of health professionals won't say that. You go to a a doctor and they'll say, why are you running in the first place? It's bad for your knees. You're going to get osteoarthritis. You're probably better off cycling or swimming and doing something that's not going to damage your joints. I can talk on a whole nother episode about that. But Yeah, that is a huge Hmm. pet peeve. It's a fear. It's a fear. (laughs) Back to your, your question. So what do we do when injuries aren't getting worse but aren't getting better at the same time? If they're not getting better, then we're failing that third pain rule that I talked about. Things should be getting better week by week. So Mm -hmm. if we're not following or abiding to those pain rules, then we need to change something. That could be you just deciding, okay, I'm going to reshuffle a few things. But if you're still trying to reshuffle things and you're still not seeing improvements week by week, find a a health professional to sort of step in and sort of come up with a few suggestions or or a running coach or like, you know, something. But you need to start moving the needle in the right direction Mm -hmm. because usually the longer you've had an injury for, the harder it is to get rid of. So we want to be as proactive as we can and we want to try and see that trend on the improve. And so that will depend on the injury, what adjustments you actually make. If we use like knee pain, if someone has pain around their kneecap, patellofemoral pain or runner's knee, if they are running at their normal mileage, um, they're not seeing improvements week by week, we have a look at like their cadence. We'll say, okay, what's your cadence? We know that if you increase your cadence by 10%, you reduce overall loads on the knee by 15%, which is huge. And so if their cadence is slightly subpar, slightly below optimal, what is optimal? Another conversation, but um, that's something we might change. We might look at, oh, every time you do hills, that increases your symptoms. Maybe just for a couple of weeks, we back off the hills. Or maybe whenever you go beyond 10 miles, this is when pain increases. So how about we just do eight for a couple of weeks and then we do everything else exactly the same. We're just making slight adjustments in their load management just to see how things go. It might be their strength training. It might not even be their running. Like I had plantar fasciitis for months and I thought it was my running, but it turns out it was actually my new work shoes and I was standing for too long in my new work shoes. Uh... And that was like revolutionary for me. I'm like, oh, I had no idea. So as soon as I replaced the shoes, I started getting better. And so mm-hmm. it could be your strength training, could be your cross training, could be something else like proximal hamstring tendinopathy could be sitting on hard surfaces. It could be stretching too much. It's like those sorts of things that people might not identify, which if you go to a health professional, they might either diagnose you correctly because you might have a misdiagnosis or identify something in your running, something outside of your running, something in your cross training that you might not have seen. And all it takes is a slight tweak and you start seeing that improvement week by week. And so self-reflection, I think runners can just self-reflect on the injuries they've had in the past, injuries they're currently facing. Are you getting better? If not, what elements can I make these tweaks on? It doesn't need to be a drastic two weeks off everything. And then we rebuild from there. It can just be slight tweaks. I think that will give runners a lot of hope. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) For sure. We went at the, the static sort of training plans at the start. We're talking about how, you know, sometimes generic plans have some missing pieces and some people like to stick to the plan. Some people like, you know, fall away from the plan. I'd like to follow up with a bit more of a a practical sort of takeaway. What are some critical components within a training plan that you think every runner should have? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, I think something that comes to mind right away, which is going to sound weird is a designated rest day. 
Mm-hmm. I think that is sometimes is one of the most underlooked components of a training plan is that your body does need downtime. And that's when you're making those, those strides in improvement and your muscles are healing and things like that, like you mentioned earlier. So I think sometimes people on the rest days are like, oh, can I, you know, can I do this? Can I do that? And like the rest day ends up being even more exhausting than a normal day. You know, they're like on their feet for eight hours of their kids' soccer games or they're going and doing and this. So I'm not saying that you just sit on the couch all day at all. There is a space for some active recovery, like walking or doing something gentle. But I think rest and recovery is often overlooked the older I get personally, like I know that I need more recovery time and I need to focus more on my sleep. That is one thing that comes to mind. Another thing is actually designating like what specific runs, what the purpose of them is for. Because sometimes, you know, you see 5K on there, you see 10K and, you know, the person is focused on their overall mileage maybe and not so much the purpose of that run. And I find that a lot of runners tend to run kind of all of their mileage in kind of that gray zone of it's not easy (laughs) and it's not really goal race pace. It's not really doing anything to benefit your energy systems or your body at all. It's just kind of wearing you out. And so I think it's really important to designate, you know, which runs are easy and what that means for each runner, whether they look at heart rate or rate of perceived exertion, something to keep those runs slower. Because I would say that probably 90% of runners tend to run their easy runs too fast. And then it depends, you know, like if you're a new runner, I would say that you're just focusing more on going the distance and building up just all the support structures. Often like the cardiovascular system kind of adapts really quickly, but sometimes it's like the joints and the bones and the tendons and ligaments that are like lagging a little bit behind. And so if a person is more advanced and let's say they're trying to run a personal best, then obviously you're going to want some very pace specific training on there as well. But, you know, you're not trying to PR every single run. Another thing that I think a mistake that I made in the beginning (laughs) was that I didn't do any type of strength training. And for me, that led to injury. So I like to see on training plans, designated strength training days. And if a person's already strength training, maybe they don't need like step by step workouts, but some people do need to know what to do, whether it's two or three days a week. It's very important for runners of all levels to be doing regular strength training. Um, And then I think things like obviously the long run, hills, you know, depending on the race that people are going for, those components will be important as well. But some of those like unsexy, (laughs) overlooked things that like rest and easy runs and strength training that kind of are what make you a stronger runner for life. And I think that's more important than any one race, you know, at the end of the day. Agreed. Yeah. I am a pro at taking rest days. Yes, you are. (laughs) And sleeping in. People don't know how to do it. It's really easy. You just walk by the treadmill and say, not today. (laughs) Not going to, not going to get me today. I'd love a lot of my listeners to jump over to your podcast. So can you just briefly mention about the, the Marathon Training Academy? If people haven't heard about it, which it's strange if no one has because it's extremely successful and it's a very huge resource when it comes to preparing for marathons and training and everything like that. Um, Can you let my audience know about the podcast and what's included? Yeah, we'd love to. So we've been podcasting since 2010. What we like to do is a variety of different shows. We have guests on the podcast, we have authors, and then a lot of folks from our community, people that 
were training. Another type of episode that we enjoy doing is race recaps. So we'll go run a race somewhere and then talk about it on the podcast. So we're going to be doing a couple of race recaps this year. For example, I'm running um, a marathon in Belgium called the Beer Lovers Marathon. Ooh, so really, really getting trained up with some quality <laughs> beer. <laughs> It's tough training sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> now we've we've really been blessed with a great a great group of listeners. You know, people in the running space are just generally the best, most enthusiastic, and wonderful people. So we're just oh yeah, really really blessed to have the listeners that we do, and you know, very thankful for them. Uh, people can find us obviously at marathontrainingacademy.com online and pretty much on the socials as well. Yeah, and if people want to find the Run Smarter podcast and find out what you got going on maybe get the book. We didn't even like really mention that you wrote a book and we were talking <laughs> off mic that took like a year and a half of just just grinding it out to get that book. Yep. It's really a meaty book, by the way. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> quick story. Like I actually had to cut down on the book. Uh, there was actually three parts to the book. And when I put together, it was 750 pages and I'm like, okay, needs to come <laughs> down to two parts. So I now have a second book ready to go when I want to publish that one. But awesome. the Run Smarter book is just like available online. You can just search Run Smarter with Brody Sharp. And if people want to check out the Run Smarter podcast, please do so. If you wanted to learn about like the injury prevention lessons and all that sort of stuff, I always recommend the podcast is the first thing to go to. But mm -hmm. if you want to then invest in some more knowledge, I do have like video content. I've got YouTube, the book, that sort of stuff. Um, people can check it out wherever like they like to absorb their content, which is why I did the book in the first place because I know not everyone, not every runner listens to podcasts and some runners like audiobooks and like books. And so mm -hmm. just trying to spread the word, get the right information out there on a, on a different medium. I can attest it's an excellent book. Um, the questions that I kind of asked you came from the book. So it, it's just such a great resource. Yeah. Thanks for sending us a copy. Mm -hmm. We get my people pleasure. sometimes they just want to send us an ebook and I'm like, man, I look at my computer screen all day for work. I'm not going to read an ebook probably. So if yeah. you put a paper copy in my hands, I might read it. I do like, I do like having a physical copy. Like it was very nice actually mm -hmm. writing the book, publishing and then having it in my hand. I'm like, here it is. It's so, so nice to have oh, yeah. rather than just like looking at it on the screen. It's your book, baby. Definitely is. Great hanging out with you, Brody. And good luck on the podcast, everything you got going on. And someday we'll make it to Australia and run one of those amazing marathons over there. Yeah, pleasure, guys. I had a lot of fun talking today. And yeah, nice to meet you. All right. Well, hope you enjoyed that conversation. It's always fun to meet a fellow podcaster. And if you have a question about anything concerning your training, your running, send us an email. We got a contact form on our website, marathontrainingacademy.com. You can, of course, find us on Instagram at Marathon Academy. Until next time, remember you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right